All right, I think we are prepared to go tonight. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous and not be afraid nor be dismayed? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall make your paths straight, is what it actually says. Uh, Let's take a few seconds uh, for spiritual preparation tonight, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, um, for our uh, own personal spiritual uh, uh, confession of sins and... Uh, relaxing and maybe refocusing ourselves on uh, who and what the Lord Jesus Christ is and his word, uh, which is so critical to us in our spiritual lives. And then I will open us in prayer. Generally, Father, we're, we're thankful for your opportunity to comfort us in times of, of need. We know that uh, every day there are either friends, families, uh, very often uh, within our own family, uh, grandparents or parents, uh, that are transitioning from time to eternity. And we, we pray, first of all, Father, that we would uh, have the, the interest uh, and the passion to give them the gospel, to ensure that they have, have heard the good news, that they need not face eternity on their own, but they can, uh, Father, face it with uh, their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we also pray for those who are enduring difficulties as we see in the, uh, in the news and we know happening, uh, not only in the United States but elsewhere as we see a, a rising wave of, uh, Islamic terror. We pray that, uh, first of all, those who who lost a family and loved ones up in New York this last uh, uh, really homicide uh, effort with the, with the vehicle, that you would comfort them, Father, that they would uh, understand the importance first of their souls, and then we pray that certainly you would also heal their bodies. We also pray, Father, that we would have the proper leadership, the wise leadership that would make decisions that would uh, begin to uh, prevent these kinds of events. Uh, We know that uh, every time one occurs, we see that there's quite a trail of comments or uh, statements that indicate uh, almost precisely the direction that the individual is going. And we pray, Father, that our law enforcement and intelligence communities would be focused on these things, Father, uh, so that uh, we as a uh, society, as, a, as our local communities, 
would be better served in that regard. Certainly praying for our uh, law enforcement agencies, whether they be police or FBI, uh, organizations of such. We pray, Father, for their skill and their uh, ability to do their jobs properly and that they would be uh, welcomed and respected uh, as they do their jobs. Father, we pray for our um, passage of Scripture tonight as we are in Zechariah, finishing uh, Zechariah 12 um, and moving into Zechariah 13. Father, we know that sometimes these passages seem to be extremely historical in nature or uh, prophetic, but have very little uh, application to us. But we know that that's not true. It's simply a matter of of sometimes understanding the, uh, the character, your character that's being displayed in this text of Scripture. We pray, Father, as we study it, that we will understand it first of all, and then we'll be able to apply it to our lives as well. We certainly pray, Father, for a, a number of families in our from our congregation that are traveling, whether it be Scott and Jerry or Scott and uh, Wasun or uh, uh, Bill and Janet and, and Bill and Marcia, we pray for their safety and the safety of others who might be traveling as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah is an important uh, prophet, uh, particularly from the standpoint of the prophecy and the future that we see, but also there's uh, a lot of... Um, uh, interaction between Zechariah and the Lord as we observe the Lord and the actions that are ongoing uh, with Zechariah the prophet. And tonight, as we finish up chapter 12, I thought I was, would be able to finish chapter 12 last week, but we didn't quite get there. And there are a few uh, items here that I think are important for us as we finish chapter 12. Chapter 12 talks about the uh, the future of Israel. And uh, this is focused, as we saw, as it says in verse 3 of chapter 12, it says, in that day, and it shall happen in that day. And in that day is used uh, quite a few times. I think it's more than 16 times in the last three chapters here. And it's a reference to the second advent, beginning uh, during the tribulation, mostly at the end of the tribulation. And we noticed, as we read through the first nine verses last time, that uh, there's going to be action in and around Judah and Jerusalem. We saw that uh, the uh, Armageddon campaign, even though it starts up in the valley of Esdraelon, uh, proceeds uh, down through Israel. It's fought to a certain extent over uh, in the area of Jordan, uh, current day Jordan, and what's known as Basra or Petra, and then back up into uh, the valley of Jehoshaphat. We're not real certain where that valley is, but we believe that it's probably just to the southeast of Jerusalem, possibly. Uh, in the convergence of the Hinnon Valley and uh, the Kidron Valley, or maybe a little bit south of there. But as we uh, arrived in verse 10 last week, we saw that the 
that the Lord is speaking and he says, I will pour out on the house, or we could say the dynasty of David uh, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And here what we're seeing is that uh, God is going to provide for the in, for the, the entire nation here, not just the royal family, uh, but the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we believe that this is also, of course, ro- uh, focusing on uh, the rest of Israel as well. Those who have, as we're going to see in our next line here, when they have looked on me, whom they uh, pierced, and the idea of looking upon the Lord, as we discussed, is the idea of having faith in Him, trusting Him. Uh, repentance is a word that we often use in the uh, the Bible, both old and new, and that's what this idea of looking on Him is not necessarily the idea of seeing Him, although they will see Him, but it's the idea now of uh, trusting in him, having faith in him, accepting him as their Messiah. And we know that this is Jesus, the one whom they pierced, uh, and that piercing will come uh, future to uh, Zachariah's time, but of course history for us, because we know that's the crucifixion. And it says they will mourn for him as one mourns for his own son. And the, the mourning, the sense here uh, that is involved with the mourning is significant because uh, it's mentioned four times, at least four times. Five times, actually, because it says here, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieves for him as one grieves for the firstborn. And as we uh, saw that last time, this ties us into the firstborn of uh, uh, of God the Father, who is the firstborn, uh, the Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the first and only born there, and he is the firstborn of creation. So the, uh, Jesus is, has that title of the firstborn. Verse 11 says, In that day there shall be a great mourning. This is the third time it's used in Jerusalem, like the mourning at uh, Hadad Ramon. And we saw that this may be a location. And of course, on the other hand, it may be a reference to an individual. But uh, history has uh, not revealed that to us. And then it says, In the plain of Megiddo. And the plain of Megiddo, Uh, of course, is to the north, and this is going to proceed south. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself. And this is where we finished last time. Uh, And as we get to verse 12, we see uh, either a theological or an eschatological uh, question that we have as we see the types of mourning. And the land shall mourn. Again, that is the fourth time, uh, the fifth time it's used, and the land shall mourn uh, every family by itself. And the sense here of every family by itself is that um, the mourning is not uh, sort of only nationwide, and not everyone being touched here, but it's going to touch the families. And then what it's going to do is it's going to divide the families as well, talking about the men and the women. And the sense here uh, is not that there is a separation of um, men uh, mourning from women, but the sense is that each one uh, has the sense of mourning. Uh, So we're not trying to divide by uh, the the, uh, sexes here. But you'll notice it says, uh, every family by itself, 
the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, so individually here, the family of the house of Nathan itself and their wives by themselves. Um, There's a question here, why do we have the house of David and then the house of Nathan? And uh, the question would be, well, which nation, uh, Nathan, is this? Uh, In the Old Testament, we have at least seven Nathans. And there are some who would say, well, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to see that there is uh, sort of the dynasty of David, maybe the royal family, and then when we get to Nathan, we're going to see that we have the the prophetic line. And that is... um, Uh, thought to be the case when we read into verse 13 the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves so that we might have here the uh, royal family uh, we would have the priestly line and then we would also have the prophetic line but that doesn't seem to work very well because in verse 13 it says the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves and then the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves and the relationship between David and Nathan and Levi and Shimei probably would run in parallel here and Shimei is a Levite and therefore the sense here is that we're we're getting a line of the line of David and then the line of Levi. And uh, what apparently is happening here is God the Holy Spirit is giving us an indication that the line is moving or is going to be traced from David and not through the line of Solomon so much as it is going to be traced through the line of Nathan. And this would be in in retrospect to the curse that Jeremiah gave on the king Coniah. And that curse is found in Jeremiah 22. Um, this is not real significant to our study tonight, but let's just turn to Jeremiah 22. Uh, Towards the end of the uh, history of the southern kingdom, we had uh, Josiah reigning. And Josiah was a righteous king. And he had four sons that reigned that uh, ascended to the throne. Uh, Jehoahaz was the first one. The second one was uh, Jehoiakim. And then Jehoiakim's son was named Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin is a name that he was given when he ascended to the throne. But his original name was Coniah. And we find that in Jeremiah 22. In Jeremiah 22, verse 24, we see Jeremiah speaking about this uh, this son 
of Jehoiakim. Now again, Jehoiachin is the son of Jehoiakim, and some people would say, well, that's not the son of Josiah. Well, in those days, a grandson was considered a son. And therefore, when we say that Josiah had four sons, as a matter of fact, uh, the Lord told Josiah he would have four sons ascend to the throne. Sadly, Josiah, while a righteous king, all four of those uh, kings that were his considered his sons that rose to the throne, all of them were considered evil. And one of them here is being addressed by uh, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, As I live, says the Lord, through Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the, uh, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. In other words, because of his evil, he's saying that he would remove him as the king. And some of you may have an asterisk right there beside Coniah. And down in the, uh, as a reference, you'll see that that is Jehoiachin. He is the son of Jehoiakim uh, in other passages. That's what we would find if we turned to, to 2 Kings 25. He says, And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and, on, uh, uh, and the hand of the Chaldeans. Verse 26. In other words, he's going to be Captured, He's going to be taken, as a matter of fact, prisoner, back to Babylon. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country. Here's the, uh, the prophecy that he is going to be captured by Nebuchadnezzar and taken back to uh, Jerusalem, or back to Babylon. His father dies in Jerusalem, but he's going back to Babylon where you were not born and there you shall die but to the land to which they desire to return they shall not return in other words he and his family will not return uh, in this man Kaniah a despised broken idol a vessel in which there is no pleasure no pleasure meaning gods why are they cast out he and his descendants and cast into a land which they do not know O earth 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 hear the word of the Lord Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childish, childish, childless. He's not childless because he had children, but his children are not going to ascend to the throne. And the line of Christ, while uh, this is Solomon's line, and we know that Joseph is in this line, we know that that is going to be the legal line, but not the physical line. As we go on, it says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Uh, so the uh, line that is coming through uh, Koniah Jehoiachin stops with him. And yes, he will have descendants. Joseph, as a matter of fact, Joseph is listed in the line of Solomon in Matthew, Matthew 1. But when we get to Luke 3, we have the line 
of Nathan, and that is Mary. So Mary, and we're going to study this in the Roots of Faith again, Mary is brings the physical line to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Joseph brings the legal line. And you will remember that Joseph, of course, is not the physical father of Jesus. So the actual physical line couldn't come through Joseph. It comes through Mary, through Nathan. And now let's turn back to uh, Zechariah 12. Therefore, it appears here in Zechariah 12.12 that God God the Holy Spirit is indicating that the official line of the Messiah is going to pass through Nathan. And Zechariah is able to make that uh, prediction because God the Holy Spirit is leading him to do so. And it's just kind of an interesting thing that in verses 12 and 13, we would see that here. And again, I don't know how many, um, I don't know if... uh, Jeremiah's uh, message had been uh, was well known at that time so that as he was speaking of Nathan those around him would say yes there you have an indication of the curse of Coniah Uh, I, I don't know that for certain but I think because Daniel was aware of Jeremiah's letters and Jeremiah's writings that Zechariah probably does know as well. Therefore, we finish up in verse 14. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Um, so we finish up. There's going to be there's a, this recognition of who the Messiah is, and that is um, the one who is going to be pierced, the one who is going to to be crucified, and they could tie this with. Uh, uh, Isaiah 53 and understand that there's going that uh, the Messiah is going to uh, pay for the sins of the world and uh, whether they at that time were able to do that or not uh, is is not revealed to us here but that certainly is what this means now uh, besides being a time of deliverance uh, Zechariah uh, uh, 12, 1 through 9, and then repentance here. That's what we were receiving with these five mornings that we're seeing in verses 10 through 14. The third characteristics, characteristics that's going to be found here, uh, is this general description of the last battle, and there is going to be a cleansing. And the cleansing that we see now is going to be described in Zechariah 13, 1 through 6. So we have the, uh, the physical deliverance. We have Israel recognizing the, the Messiah. And now what we're going to see as we read about the fountain in the day, uh, in that day, in uh, uh, Zechariah 13, 1, we're going to see that there, this is going to be a time of cleansing for Israel. And what I'd like to call your attention to, I don't think we're going to arrive there tonight, but as you look over to uh, Zechariah 13, we see in verse 9 
Verse 9 says, I will bring one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. See, this is them looking upon the one whom they've pierced. They're going to call on my name, and I will answer them. This is the delivery at the end of the tribulation. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. And therefore, he's bringing them through the, the, the difficulty at the end of the tribulation, and he is going to deliver them, those who are still alive. As a matter of fact, all of the Jews who are alive at that time, one-third of them are going to be delivered, and they're going to pass in to the uh, messianic kingdom all right well let's i think we can do um, verses one through six tonight because this is the cleansing process that they're going to have and what's interesting about this passage is as we look at uh zechariah 13 1 is that it starts out with this idea of cleansing we're going to see the uh, announcement of this Fountain, A fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, we saw, we saw that term before. So it's a reference to not just the royalty, but also for the inhabitants as well, uh, for the sin and for the cleanliness so, uh, for the, and for uncleanness. So we're going to have this sense of the, the cleansing. But what this is going to, to develop into is a uh, an admonition and also a uh, a woe we could almost say on false prophets and that really uh, takes up uh, the last three to four verses here but let's uh, go ahead and work on uh, the first verse in that day in that day a fountain and the word here the Hebrew word for fountain might be better translated a spring but the sense here is it's running water uh, it's something that it's not just uh, going uh, over to a pool or a pond or a lake but this is running water and running water in the Bible is very often associated with a blessing or we'll see here that it's also related to cleansing clean uh Living water is another word for living water was running water, uh, water that was not stagnant. It was uh, considered to be more pure. Uh, we start out with in that day, and that continues the prophecy about the second advent. Uh, remember I said we have about used about 16 times. Well, we're going to see it in verse 1. We'll also see it in verse 2 and then in verse verse 4 it's used again uh, so we're going to see it three times in uh, chapter 13 at least three times because I think that's all the times it's used now first of all uh, or secondly secondly here in verse 1 now that Israel has looked on the Messiah a fountain is opened. Um, the Messiah, they've looked at the Messiah with faith, 
and they've repented, we could say, of the years of rejection. And so the Lord now is going to open a fountain to cleanse the nation, cleanse the nation of sin and impurity or uncleanness. And the, the, there are some who try to make a differentiation here between uh, the sin, uh, the understanding of missing a mark, and impurity. But I'm not going to uh, use it that way tonight because very often the Bible intensifies a topic by using uh, two different words or maybe even three different words to refer to that subject. And I think that's what we should probably see here. Uh, and uh, again, the, the fountain the fountain is best understood as figurative. Uh, therefore, when we talk about the fountain or the spring, uh, we could, if we wanted to, see a literal fountain or a literal spring running. But if we did that, we would only want to use it for the sense of, uh, of spiritual cleansing, sort of the analogy of it. Uh, because I think the understanding here is the cleansing of their souls. So the fountain is best understood as figurative. Water being used as the cleansing agent and the fountain of the spring gives the sense of ritual cleansing. Uh, the water is not what removes sin. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ forgives the sin, forgives the iniquity, the uncleanness, but it's a spiritual aspect. It illustrates the process of the faith on the people's part and forgiveness then on the Lord's part. So the cleansing here is going to be spiritual. And this language, this fountain open and cleansing uh, from sin and purity is uh, what we would call new covenant language. And we've seen some of these passages uh, in the past, but let's take a quick look at Jeremiah 31.31 to pick up this language again to understand the cleansing that's there. Jeremiah 31.31 then we'll go back to uh, Ezekiel for a passage as we see these. In Jeremiah 31.31 we see first of all the days are coming and that puts us in the same uh, sort of the same vein as in that day, in those days, uh, on that day. Verse 31 in Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming. So this is future. This, And he's going to be speaking here of the regeneration of Israel. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice that this is uh, Israel. House of Judah, a house of Israel, northern kingdom, house of Judah, southern kingdom. So we merge those together. We have the nation as one again. And it's not the church. This is not uh, replacement theology. The new covenant is not for the church. And I was reading something just today. Uh, one theologian uh, says in the eschatological, in parenthesis, church. Well, no, we're not referring to the eschatological church here. There uh, is uh, a place for the church, but at this time, it's going to be in heaven. 
not on the not on the on the land, or if it or the church will have returned. If we're talking about the first part of the millennium, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. So he's talking about the Sinaitic Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic law. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Uh, You always notice that there is a distinction here as how we refer to Israel and the church. Um, Israel is referred to as the wife of the husband who is the Lord and the church is referred to as the bride of the groom who is the Lord so we keep those distinct we have that understanding they're never really they're never merged Uh, verse 33 but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days this is the end of the tribulation beginning of of the messianic kingdom says the Lord I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord in other words there's not going to be any need for them to be witnessing to one another to lead someone to the Messiah because they're already going to know for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more and verse uh, 34 there is the one that I wanted to see this is the, the forgiveness and the cleansing now in Zechariah let's go to Zechariah 36 excuse me uh, Ezekiel 36 In Ezekiel 36, we see this use of water again. In Ezekiel 36, in verse... Ezekiel 36, verse 25. uh, Verse 20... It's hard hard to jump into the middle of this. Um, Verse 22. Therefore, Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel... Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name. I will set it apart, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in the midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. In other words, how did Israel do this? They were disobedient as a nation. They were disobedient and the Lord had to uh, discipline them and take them into nations that were not the promised land, uh, exile them, and so that the nations would look at Israel and say, well, our gods are more powerful than their gods. And that's how they profaned Israel, uh, the God of Israel. Well, God says there's a day coming when he is going to demonstrate that he is the God. When, he, uh, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. In other words, he's going to fight for them and defend them. Verse 24. For I will take you out from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Deliver them. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all the filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, God the Holy Spirit within you. I will take from you the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk by my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And I think that's the sense that we have here. That's the understanding of this fountain, this spring that's going to be opened. Uh, it's It's God the Holy Spirit cleansing them and the only ones who are going to remain is that third that we're going to see in the later part of this chapter who have faith in the Messiah. They're going to be cleansed. Okay. Uh, uh, Point four here. The house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem include all the people of Israel. Uh, So all of them who remain will need cleansing and they're all going to be sprinkled with this water as it's described, but the sprinkling is really... Uh, the giving of God the Holy Spirit. Fifth, uh, the word, the idea of sin and impurity means all the sin and wickedness that Israel has uh, demonstrated in the past. All of those sins, as we read in Jeremiah 31, 34, are going to be forgiven and forgotten. Uh, and the reason we know that is because of the cross. They are. And now that Israel has uh, demonstrates their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah, they will be forgiven. Uh, and then point seven here, Zechariah wrote of this earlier, this type of, uh, of forgiveness and cleansing when he spoke of Joshua the high priest. And you may remember in chapter three, when Joshua the high priest is standing in front of the Lord and um, the Lord says, take off his filthy garments and give him clean garments. And that was another indication of God forgiving, cleansing uh, Israel, the high priest representing uh, the nation of Israel there. Uh, so uh, this is, uh, Joshua was, was the symbolic cleansing of not just the high priest, but of Israel. And this is going to be the Messiah's end time cleansing. Now, verse 2. Verse 2 says, It shall be in that day. So, Zechariah 2, in that day, continues this prophecy about the second advent. And uh, some you know, might ask, why, do, why does Zechariah, or why does God the Holy Spirit, continue to use in that day? I... I think there's probably several reasons, but you know the ones that I, I think stand out to me is that God wants Israel to know there is a future day. There's going to be, as they stand there and listen to Zechariah and listen to Haggai, they, they need to know that there's going to be a future day, a future day when all of this is going to end, the Messiah is going to return, and they are going to have the Messianic kingdom. And this sort of is a drumbeat in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. And of course, it certainly also uh, helps us to stay in the context of uh, eschatology here. 
So, in that day continues this prophecy that Zechariah is receiving from the Lord. And you'll notice in uh, uh, verse 2 it says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, again, Lord of hosts here is the emphasis on uh, God being the sovereign God over everything. And the Lord of hosts, the Lord of forces, we could say here, means that he is not only the sovereign God, but he has the power uh, and the authority, the might to accomplish what he's saying. So it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. And then, verse 2, we begin this, I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Uh, there is uh, some question here about the context. I will also cause the prophets. Uh, what kind of prophets uh, is being addressed? And I think because we're talking about the removal of sin and uncleanness, and the removal of the idols, this removal of the prophets is the removal of the false prophets. Because in, in Zechariah's day, there were, there were many false prophets. Uh, and then the, and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. We'll get a, a look at this in a moment. Uh, but, uh, secondly, if we're looking at this, the word here, cut off, means that he's going to destroy them. So I'm going to cut off the names. Um, there were various idols, and they came from various countries because uh, many different people had been brought back to the land when uh, the uh, northern kingdom was taken. And then in the southern kingdom, uh, other nations had migrated in there. We know that uh, the Edomites had migrated in. We know that the Samaritans had come down from the north. And so there were other peoples who were in the land. And when we start talking about names, we're talking about those those individual idols that were there. And it says, I'm going to cut them off, which means to destroy or to remove them. Uh, you may remember when Israel entered the, the promised land under Joshua, they were supposed to destroy completely the pagan Canaanite culture, but they failed to do that. And here the Lord is saying, when I arrive, I'm going to do that. I'm going to remove these. But of course, it's not just from uh, the promised land, but for Israel and for the audience that Zechariah has, this is what is meaningful to them. But for the Messianic kingdom, it's going to be for the entire world. Uh, so the Lord here uh, is going to do what Israel failed to do uh, at the second advent. Uh, point three is that God will overcome all factors that detract from his worship and all idolatry will become extinct. So uh, everything that's going to be a distraction to focusing on the Lord is going to cease. It's going to be, uh, as I say, become extinct. 
idolatry uh, near the time of the second advent of Christ will include, of course, the worship of the image of the beast, the Antichrist, in the temple of Jerusalem. And, of course, that cleansing is going to occur as well. Uh, Fourth, along with idols, we're going to see FPs here, false prophets, and all demonic activity will be removed. We know that uh, demonic activity is really what's behind um, uh, false prophets. Uh, And we know that it's also behind idolatry. Now, there are some who take this phrase... Uh, in cha- in verse two, uh, I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Uh, they associate the unclean spirit, meaning the unclean attitude or the unclean. Uh, we could probably say uh, information here, but I I think that a better understanding of it is to say that the prophets along with the source of their information and very often their activities because they could perform uh, certain signs and wonders and the only way they could do that is through demonic activity. So point four here, along with the idols, we're going to also see false prophets and and demonic activity being removed. Uh, Of course, during the Messianic kingdom, Satan is going to be imprisoned. He's going to be, as we see in Revelation 20, 1 through 3, he's going to be bound, and all demonic activity at that time is going to stop. Uh, It's going to come to an end, and I think that this is one of the references to that. Uh, Fifth, false prophets had always been prohibited. There's a great passage here, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, that tells us this. Uh, Deuteronomy, let me leaf back here to Deuteronomy. I always like getting back into Deuteronomy. It's a, one of my favorite books. But Deuteronomy 13 was one of the more powerful passages talking about how Israel was supposed to was supposed to administer with false prophets. And Deuteronomy 13.1 says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, well, now you would think that if someone comes to Israel or let's just say, comes to us as Israel. And he wants to demonstrate his power, his authority, his legitimacy as a prophet. And he uh, performs a sign or a wonder. You might say, aha, that's an indication of his legitimacy. We can accept him. But what... Moses is going to say, what God the Holy Spirit through Moses is going to tell us here, is that just because someone can perform or assign or wonder doesn't mean they are legitimate. Doesn't That does not give them the authority to 
speak authoritatively with the truth. Because you'll notice, he says, that if they say, if they say, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not shema. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what is the true test here? We go back to Deuteronomy 18. The true test is, does it align with what you've been told? Does it comport with the other truth that you've heard? And if someone steps up and says something, and you say, well, that, does, that doesn't sound like uh, the same message that we've been told by Moses, well, then the message is in, unacceptable. And verse 4 here says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. The word there, hold fast, means to be committed to Him. Uh, because this false prophet is saying, let's follow other gods. No, you don't follow other gods. There's only one God. Verse 5, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. So, what do we do with false prophets? They're to be executed. They're not supposed to be able to continue their lies. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the hand, out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, to live. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. And the word there for put away is the word to burn. So you shall remove it completely, destroy it. And that's what they're supposed to do. So if false prophets have always been prohibited from existing in the land. And finally, all these false prophets are going to be removed and they will not be a threat to the spiritual life of the nation after this because this is going to be the second advent. And the word, the phrase here, no longer be remembered, means a complete loss of interest or thought. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, I just can't remember who that guy was, you know, or who that God was. Well, there's not going to be an interest in remembering it. It simply means here, this phrase, uh, means that there will be no interest or thought of returning to those idols, which is what Israel was told all along. Forget the idols and the false information you learned in Egypt and follow the God that has brought you here. So the desire to pursue any other God or distraction is going to be removed from their souls. And that's what we read in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, is that their hearts are going to be purified. And I think this is what uh, Zechariah is saying. It parallels exactly what Jeremiah uh, had, had told them. Uh, verse 3. So Zechariah now, Zechariah 13, 3 says... Uh, it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who begot him will say to him, "You shall not live, uh, you shall not live, 
because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. See, this lines up exactly with Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. When the father and the mother, and why would they say father and mother? Well, there's a couple reasons here. And the first reason is, in other words, as soon as the individual seems to be a false prophet. We don't have to wait until um, it spreads through a portion of the tribe, the clan, uh, the family. No, as soon as the father and mother. They're going to know first that there's a problem here. So, uh, as soon as his father and mother who begot him, they'll say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. In other words, they're going to put a stop to this immediately as soon as they have this sense. Now, uh, probably one of the more compelling questions here that we have to ask is if the Lord in verse 2 has said they're going to stop then when we get to verse 3 why do we still have false prophets I mean and we're talking about the father and mother who begot them but it seems here if we aren't maybe we don't have the right interpretation that it seems like uh, all right we've started the messianic kingdom the millennial kingdom and we've removed all the false prophets but now we're being told if we continue to have these false prophets and I don't think that that's what this is saying as a matter of fact I think it's saying something uh, radically different Um, first of all if the Lord puts an end to falsehood, then indeed it's going to cease. It's going to stop. So why would we need to worry? Why would any father or mother need to worry about uh, one of their offspring suddenly being a false prophet? Um, I think what we have here in verse 3 is we have a hypothetical situation and a condition contrary to fact. I think what's going to be taught now is going to be um, an idea that it really is going to be gone. So we have a condition that is contrary to fact. Uh, How should we state this then? I think a better way to read even though the, the text I think the translation is fine but maybe a better way of seeing this and understanding it interpreting it would be to say if anyone still prophesies but none will his parents would immediately put a stop to it now um, in, in reading this with you know, you know several other uh, theologians uh, they're of course asking that same question because when I got to, to three that was my question I don't know that I had the best answer but in reading some of the explanations I think this is the best answer that we can we can find for this um, the idea here is that the Lord is going to put a stop to it 
and someone might say, well, what if another false prophet manages to rise up? Well, if he does, guess what? The father and mother is going to kill it right there. And for someone to understand that, they'd say, well, it's pretty hard for a father and mother to kill a, kill a child like that, isn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's what, that's the strength of this statement in allegiance to God. So, when we get to, uh, the fourth point that I'd like to make, uh, first, obedience to the Lord is so complete that even the parents will not tolerate a false prophet. And when we talk about false prophets, we're also talking about, of course, uh, false information. Uh, any kind of information, any kind of uh, illegitimate uh, messaging that is uh, that doesn't line up with what we know about the Messiah or what the Messiah is saying. So first of all, the sense here is that obedience to the Lord is so complete that even parents will not tolerate a false prophet. And then fifth, the the parents would be the first to eliminate the source of the falsehood. So, uh, the idea here is that the commitment, the loyalty, and the faithfulness to the Lord is going to be so strong that even parental love will be first to remove any kind of heresy, any kind of false prophets. And then finally, point six, in other words, not even an emotion as strong as parental love would allow a lying prophet to exist. So, um, therefore we understand that uh, what is being stated in verse 3 is that the action of God in verse 2 is absolute. So what God is going to do in verse 2, removing of idols, removing of false prophets, removing of demonic activity, is going to be so complete and absolute that even if a false prophet could somehow rise up after that, but it won't, parental love will eliminate it. So I think that's what we see in uh, Zechariah 13.3. Now, uh, verse 4 says, And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision, when he prophesies, they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. Now, this point four now continues with these false prophets. And the question, I think, again, a legitimate question is, well, wait a minute, I didn't think there were any false prophets. Well, I think that Zechariah is making, again, through the leading of God the Holy Spirit, is taking a little bit of a turn here. Speaking of false prophets, all those that are evil are going to be wiped out. But there's going to be a sense here that Zechariah is also uh, has some application for those who are standing in front of him. So 
uh, that's going to take a little bit longer than I wanted. And therefore, let's, I kind of hope to get through this tonight, but we'll come back next week and we'll see uh, the rest of chapter, I think we can get the rest of chapter 13. Chapter 13, uh, beginning with 4, 5, and 6, we'll move into 7, 8, and 9. Um, excellent uh, chapter here as we go. Uh, but you, we can tell here that uh, you know the application for us is that uh, God is intolerant of uh, false information and uh, it, his desire is that it be put far from us. And the only way we do that is through a constant study of the Word of God. Uh, with God the Holy Spirit leading us, soaking in the Word of God. And that is something that we should try to do every day. And we may not be able to read uh, a significant part of the Word of God, but every day we should take time to read part of it, whether it's in the Psalms or whether it's reading through uh, the uh, the prophecies or reading through the writings or the wisdom literature or in the New Testament uh, find time uh, after your prayer to read a passage of the Bible, uh, whether it just be a chapter or a couple chapters. I think that's important for us to do because that keeps our, keeps us mentally aligned with the truth of the Word of God. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for uh, Zachariah's ministry here. We're thankful for the prophecy. We're thankful, that Father, that we can see that there is a future, not only for Israel. If there's a future for Israel, then there's a future for us, Father, the church. And we pray that uh, as Israel was admonished, Father, to be obedient, we must be obedient as well. And uh, Israel is our example. Um, you will bless those whom are faith, who are faithful to you. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be uh, a nation that receives your blessing. Uh, and one of the ways, of course, we understand that is through keeping the, princi- the biblical principles. Uh, those that are just leap out at us today would be individual responsibility, uh, our own volition of uh, turning to you. Secondly, marriage, the divine institution of marriage, the divine institution of the family and the nation. Help us, Father, to be a nation that is a blessing to the rest of the world and also help us to be a friend of Israel because, Father, we know that if we're a friend of Israel, you will bless us. And part of that responsibility is taking the gospel to the rest of the world. Father, we ask for your blessing upon uh, this nation and upon our congregation. And finally, we, we pray again for those who have lost uh, loved ones in this latest attack. Uh, Father, help us to understand that this is a spiritual battle as well as a physical battle, but we need to win the physical battle as well, not ignore it. Father, therefore we ask for wise leaders and wise judgment in our policies for the nation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.